Hey everybody, this is Mike Van Meter and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. And I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And this podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And folks, this episode is sponsored by FHE Health a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. And so, folks, today my guest is going to be Beverly Perez, and she is the CEO and co-founder of Shield Us, and she's going to talk about how and why she created this organization. And it's a very special organization that helps first responders deal with trauma and specifically deals with the issue of suicide. And many of you know that suicide is just a horrendous problem in the country, but really today's discussion is going to be centered around first responders and and specifically the police. And this may surprise a lot of you, but really in the police field, we're more of a danger to ourselves than than the public is to us. We're, we're more likely to die from our, our own hand than from uh, being involved in a, an incident with a, a member of the public. And I think a lot of you may not believe that, but it's true, and Beverly's going to talk about that. And, you know, it's just a big, big issue. And she's going to tell us about her story, uh, some of the things that happened to her, her experience, and what led her to uh, founding an organization like Shield. Uh, shield us and it's going to be just a just a powerful story and i want you to hear from her how uh, we can get well we can help others get well and you know if you're in this profession if you're in the first responder profession i want you to listen very closely to her story and and really just take any advice that you can from her to help yourself and others and so with that uh beverly thanks for coming on the program hi mike thank you for having me yeah, so I hope I did you justice in setting that up there, and yeah, I'm you sure did. you're going to fill in all the gaps. <laughs> yes. yes, yes, thank you. Well, how did we get here? Uh, go back and lead us to you know how it is that you and and why you and I are having this conversation today. So it all started. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been quite the journey. Um, I did 10 years, as you mentioned, I did law enforcement. I did 10 years with the Prince George's County Police Department in Maryland. And after being involved in a traumatic incident, what I noticed was the gap in services for first responders, primarily for me as a former police officer, I noticed the gap in services and that's when I kind of came up with the idea to start something. However, it took time for me to get the vision because I had to obviously do the healing. I had to do the work before I could do the work. And in that journey, what I found out was that the things that worked for me that were serving me in my journey of healing were holistic practices, all the cognitive type of therapies like journaling, meditation, mindfulness, all those things. And so what I did is I started my nonprofit, as you mentioned, Shield Us, which stands for self-help in every law enforcement department. And our goal is to do wellness retreats for first responders. I also offer trainings and motivational speaking as well. And now we're here. When you say retreats, um, are, are these like three-day retreats? Maybe walk us through what what are those and, and what happens at, the, at these retreats? So I am happy to say that Shieldus is two years old. However, we just got recognized, I want to say like three months ago, as a 501c3 through the IRS. So 
very excited about that. Our steps now are coming up with, you know, fundraising and grant and partnerships. Ideally, how I would want the retreats to go, they would be for three to five days, depending on the group. I would put out, so we have, we want to have our first retreat in 2023. And right now what we have on the website is the opportunity for people to go in. If they're interested in coming to one of the retreats, they would have to fill out an application. There is an application process for it. Okay, great. So that's a lot like uh, I, I participate in what are known as post-critical incident seminars. And this sounds a lot like that. Right. And so for us, what I would like to do when I do the retreats, is I want to do kind of like the soul searching, the deep work to find out how we can recover from or deal with the everyday stressors of being on the job or things that we've experienced in our personal lives. Yeah. And so we would do like a lot of the mindfulness. We would do a lot of the meditation. We would do maybe even a Reiki. And of course in there we'll have a day where we get to do something fun as a team, but it's, I want, what I want it to look like is no cell phones, no distractions. It's just you right then and there, raw, vulnerable, and sharing in this experience and hopefully coming out with tools and skills and just a different, a shift, a hopeful shift of mindset on how to continue, you know, going through life and all its obstacles. Yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot of them. That's true for anyone, but particularly uh, somebody in the police field. And, and I'm saying police because that's, that's the background that you and I both come from. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, I've often said, and I've said on this podcast before, that if the public experienced once in their lifetime things that police officers experience on a daily basis, they would likely be in therapy for the, the rest of their life. But we we face things every single day that would traumatize people. And, you know, it, it's funny, you know, my background is is with alcohol, you know, addiction and and. You know, people are like, you know, how did that happen? You know, how did that progress to the point to where you got to where you were? You know, the more and more I study the field and, and uh, you know, I, I, for those of you that know, I, I just finished my uh, uh, graduate degree in addictions and co-occurring disorders from the Hazel and Betty Ford program last week, as a matter of fact. Yoo-hoo, <laughs> I got that done. But as I studied this field academically, not just from my own personal recovery, uh, I realized that you know, the question shouldn't be, why is it that people have addiction and mental health problems in law enforcement? It's, the question really is, how do you, those of you that have not suffered from that, how the heck did you do it? Because really, I think with what the stuff that we've been exposed to, it would be normal, it would be expected to have problems on the other end. Because as I said earlier, um, people, the average person, if they were exposed once, to the things that we are exposed to every day, they would be in therapy for the rest of their lives. So it's really amazing that we have so many people go through this profession and come out the other end relatively well. But what we're talking about here are the people that are suffering from trauma, PTSD, complex PTSD, uh, you know, uh, all the different traumas that we go through in this uh, profession, and then the devastating effects from it. Now, you have direct experience with that. And and if you could, um, as much as you can, or you feel comfortable with, can you walk us through what the, there's a particular incident that led you to where you are now? Could you maybe walk us through that? Sure. Um, and so one thing I do, I also, I facilitate groups, and I do like 
mental coping skills or mental fitness or suicide awareness and prevention and all those things. And when I do these groups, um, I'm working and with folks that are recovering from substance abuse or are dealing with mental health issues. One of the things I always ask them, what was the straw that broke the camel's back for you to get to this place? Like kind of like this place of desperation where you're just like, I need help. So I always ask like, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? How, what had to happen for you to ask for help? And I say that to say that this particular incident that happened to me was what broke the camel's back for me. Um, I noticed now in my journey that I've been dealing with suicidal ideations. I mean, depression. I've been dealing with that long before this incident. However, this incident is kind of what took it over for me. And, and I, I don't mind sharing it. I share it, you know, wherever I can, because I feel like it's the best way to kind of connect with people. So my incident took place on March 13 of 2016. Um, at the time I had been dating, of course, another police officer. Uh, it was actually one of my rules when I started working. I was like, no, babe, you are not going to date a police officer. Like you're not going to date a cop. And I stuck to that rule as much as I could until I fell in love with Ja'Kai, Ja'Kai Colson. Um, he was a rookie on my squad and I just, I was in, like, I just thought he was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And um, so we started dating. We didn't tell anybody we were dating while we were working because I was the senior corporal on the squad and he was a rookie and it was just too much. However, Ja'Kai was really good at what he did. He worked, uh, he always wanted to work in narcotics and he was really good. By, I think it was the second year, he got picked up by the narcotic squad, which is very early. Normally, you have to do at least five years on the streets before you get picked up to a specialty unit. But Ja'Kai was really good at what he did. So he got picked up by the narcotics unit, at which point we started to let people know that we were together because it didn't matter. Like, he was in a separate unit. On March 13 of 2016, you know, me and Ja'Kai, we were... At the at my house, he was staying with me. Um, we were at home that morning. Um, everything was going well. He had a no-knock warrant with the SWAT team, and it was a Sunday. I had a special assignment at our headquarters, which houses you know our chief, command staff, specialty units, and some civilians as well. So it's a pretty busy station. On this particular day, Jakai's in his you know plain clothes in his unmarked vehicle. I'm in uniform. And we leave the house that morning and he said he's going to pick up lunch and um, pick up some food and drop it off at my location where I was going to be working on his way to his warrant. And so I just remember us at the light. He looks at me. He waves at me. I wave back at him. He used to do this uh, wave like the little rascals where he put his hand under his chin and wave his fingers. And so he did that. And. I responded to the area that I was going to work in and I put the radio on for that area when I heard chaos. Like I just hear officers screaming for more backup. Um, and what, what it ended up being was an active shooter situation. There was a guy named Michael Ford. He had two brothers, the, and, you know, they're known as the Ford brothers. They had been a bit of a, a problem house, I guess you could say kind of in the neighborhood officers had responded there before. Well, on this particular day, uh, Michael Ford wanted suicide by cop. So what he did is he went to our headquarters and he started shooting actively at our headquarters. So when one of the detectives tried to come out, he's getting shot at. So he retreated. He went back into the station and that's when he started calling for help. And that's what I heard.
um, the backdrop on the, across from our headquarters is a shopping center. So it's a pretty active neighborhood, which makes it difficult for officers to actually shoot back at him because the backdrop is people and civilians. At this point, what I heard was start me some more units, signal 13, signal 13. And signal 13 for us is when we call like every and anyone to come to our aid. So at that point, I turned on my lights and sirens. And the first thing that came to my mind, Mike, was crap, Jakai. Because I know that he went to go pick up food. He's in plain clothes. He doesn't have a dispatch radio. He's not able to listen to what's happening right now. He's, you know, he's in an unmarked vehicle. So the first thing I thought of was to call him. I'm going priority, one hand on the steering wheel, and the other hand, I'm on the phone, and I'm talking to him on speakerphone, and I'm like, babe, I need you to get out of the area. He's like, hey, where are you? I'm here. I'm like, no, 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 I need you to get out of the area. He's like, what? what's going on? And he just hears the chaos, and I'm like, I don't know. It's an active shooter. There's someone there shooting at the station. Can you just please just get out of the area? And I remember trying to talk to him, and it was a lot of confusion, at which point, as I got closer to the station, I heard what sounded like 13 shots and my heart sunk. Like, I, I just knew, like, something something just happened. And, of course, I had my windows down. It was a rainy Sunday. And as I'm driving into the scene, I heard Jakai, and he's yelling police. Like, he's trying to identify himself. And I look, and I saw him laid on the ground. I back my cruiser up in a 45-degree angle. I park it in a 45-degree angle in front of Jakai in order to shield him. And when I, I made an announcement, please stop shooting at him. This is a police officer. Please stop shooting at him. And I had my lights on. And I remember taking my weapon out, kind of duck walking behind the cruiser. I get on my hands and knees and I'm holding Jakai like I'm shielding him with my body. And I pointed my weapon outwards towards wherever the gunfire was coming from. And all I saw was police officers. I just saw blue. So I holstered my weapon at that point and I, I held him. Uh, Jakai had been struck. He'd been shot by another police officer who mistook him for a suspect, for the suspect. Um, Jakai had been shot on his side and the bullet was looking for an exit, which gave him internal bleeding. So that's how I found him when I, when I was with him. And I just remember being on my hands and knees and holding him and he's choking on his blood and his eyes are kind of rolling back and he's still saying police, police, but like choking on his blood. And I just remember looking at him and I'm like holding him in my arms and I'm on my hands and knees and I'm like, baby, I got you. Like, I got you. And he just looked at me, he stopped yelling police and he looked at me and then he closed his eyes. And at that point I was like, hell no, not on my watch. So I put, take everything out of the cruiser. My cruiser was right, right there, of course. So I, took everything out uh one of my peers one of my boys he his name is Katz he put Jakai in the back seat my cruiser I was like I'm driving so I get in the driver's seat and I drove him as fast as I possibly could to the hospital and unfortunately Jakai did not make it that day um what I know happened is when he responded to the active shooter situation he saw in action, the suspect shooting at the police station. Jakai jumped out of his unmarked vehicle, and as he's running for cover, he's shooting at the same time, and he shot 13 rounds, one of which struck the suspect, putting him down. 
And as Ja'Kai continued to run for cover, it allowed uh, um, the officers came out. And one of the officers that came out saw Ja'Kai running and shot Ja'Kai, thinking Ja'Kai was the suspect. And that's when I found him. Uh, after that, I just, I knew my life, as far as what I, at the moment, I was like, my life was over for me. Unfortunately, for unknown reasons, the police department denied my medical pension. Obviously, I couldn't do the work anymore. I had to get evaluated by several doctors who determined me unfit for duty due to PTSD, severe depression, anxiety, panic, and just all these things. September of 2016, I had a suicide attempt. Thankfully, I'm here. Uh, you know, I, I made it through that. Yeah. However, it's just been a whirlwind of not understanding why this happened and feeling the lack of support, feeling lost, survivor's guilt. Oh, man, I lived with survivor's guilt for so long. I just would think, like, why? Like, the one life that I was going to preserve, the one life that I was going to save or protect and serve, it would have been Jakai's, and I couldn't do it. So that's essentially through that journey and ongoing, I had to do some really, really deep soul search and work to get me to where I'm at right now. Just be here. Wow. Well, I am, I am so, so sorry to hear about that. And, you know, boy, there's a lot to dissect there, but I'm going to start with what I hear from a lot of people, when I go out and I do post-critical incident seminars, as I mentioned, and this is trauma that we're helping, for, not just police officers, but first responders deal with the trauma that they've gone through. And we have them go through the stories, and yours sort of mirrors many of the stories that I hear, and that is, A, the trauma that you've gone through, which is bad enough. But what I hear, and oftentimes the, the people that come into these seminars spend almost as much, if not more time, talking about how angry they are that they felt betrayed by their agency. And I, I sense some of that in here, too, that not just the incident itself, but the, how you were treated after the incident. Is it fair to say that that contributed significantly to the, to the trauma that you went through? You know, looking as, as the woman that, that sits here now, uh, I know that it was just a lack of education, a lack of compassion, and that there's just so much work that needs to be done as it pertains to how to handle these kinds of incidents and how to help officers that go through this stuff. Mm -hmm. However, at the time, oh, yeah, it contributed. It contributed at the time. I needed the pat on the back. I needed. They had an award ceremony for the officers that acted in valor that day. I was not mentioned. I was not invited. I was not. Like I died out there with him, but I wasn't mentioned like I existed at all. And I, I don't know why. So that I needed that, like I needed to be awarded to feel like, you know, I, I tried and I needed the pat on the back. I needed the support because all it did was when I didn't get that stuff, it just contributed to my feelings of worthlessness. It contributed to my survivor's guilt. It contributed to good punish me because I couldn't save Jakai. You're right. I don't deserve an award because I couldn't save him. I'm not a hero. I'm not good enough. I am a burden. I don't belong here. Contributed to my suicidal ideations, feelings of worthlessness. I was beyond angry. I think I was more so angry at myself 
of course. Number one, I hated being me for being alive and for him not being alive. And then to just get kicked while you're down, essentially by my department, I was, I was just, I was done with all of it. All I thought about, literally, Mike, I would wake up every day and I would think about how do I die today? Mm. Wow. Did you, did you ever find out why the, the department did not recognize you or sort of ignore you? What, did you ever find uh, out any answers to that? So what I ended up doing was I did at the time I did as much as I wanted to die. I knew that I had to be strong enough to fight for my pension because I also knew like, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right. Like, why are you denying? I was confused. So I did have an attorney and he appealed once he appealed twice. And it was interesting because at the time he was very adamant about this fight. He was like sending emails telling them, you know, highly suggest you change your decision and this is um, completely unfair and this and this and that. And then one day he just sends me an email and just says, Bev, just stop. Just let it go. And I was just like, what? No. And, you know, he said he wasn't going to represent me anymore. At that moment, I knew that there's something bigger going on behind the scenes, above the scene. I don't know. And it's been some time I put it away. I had to continue healing. I had to figure out for me, how much do I really want to do with, with myself first? And then I decided literally in May, I went home and I did an interview with NBC four news to shine a light on Prince George's County police department for denying my pension. And I'm waiting for answers. And Mike, I'm not a difficult person to get in contact with. However, I've not heard back from anybody yet. There was a second interview after my first interview. There was a second interview from uh, Calvin Harris, who works for the county. And he pretty much went on record saying, you know, she deserves her full pension. She deserves the award. She deserves all the stuff. Uh, however, I've not heard from anyone. And, you know, honestly, for me, you know, the big picture is I've been homeless and suicidal. So, my my biggest thing is there needs to be a change in the pension plan, the verbiage, the decisions that are made, the decision makers. There needs to be transparency. Tell me, like I, I would love to know, even if it's even if it's something as absolutely unfair as well. It's because you're a woman. Oh, it's because you're Hispanic. Oh, it's because of this. Because we don't like you, Bev. But tell me why. Give me something. But I don't have that answer as yet. However. I am shielded by my strength and my my intelligence and everything. So I'm going to continue fighting. I'm going to continue raising awareness. I'm going to continue sharing my story. I'm going to continue talking and doing interviews such as this to shine a light. And I'm not going to stop until they give me an absolute honest reason why they denied my medical pension. I'm not going to stop. Unfortunately, wow. I don't have the answer yet, though. So you, you don't have the pension now or you do? Nope. You still don't have it. Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) No. Oh, wow. No. But but I understand that they did give you an award eventually, correct? No. No. Okay. No. Wow. Yep. I got nothing. Wow. I am so sorry to hear about that. And uh, I I mean, it's not as if you didn't, weren't going through enough trauma as it was. I mean, goodness gracious. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand this. I really don't. I don't either. And when I think about it, you know, I appreciate, you know, I appreciate him, uh, Calvin Harris, going on, you know, going on record and saying, yo, she deserves the pension and we want to 
you know, award her immediately and all this stuff. But it's like, I'm not doing all this for an award. Not anymore. I needed it. 2016, Bev needed, needed that award. Now? No, no, no. <laughs> I don't need the stuff. I don't need this stuff. But I need for something to change within this particular department and other agencies. Because what I do know is that there is officers that are suffering in silence as we speak because they know that they're not gonna get support from their agencies. They're self-medicating, they're sitting with depression, they're going, they're putting on their uniform and going to work every day thinking, I hate people and I hate it here. Yeah. Because they know that if they were to leave their jobs, they're not gonna get supported by their agency. Because unless your scars are visible on an x-ray, your scars are gonna get overlooked. It's essentially what these departments, what my department is saying. Sorry, Bev, no, you're, you're fine. We're not gonna give you, we're not gonna give you your medical pension, you're fine. How are you going to tell me I'm fine? Were you with me at my nightmares every night? Are you with me in my suicidal ideations? Mm. But but I'm fine because you can't prove or see my scars or my brokenness, quote unquote, on an X-ray. That's not right. You don't treat people like that. No, even that's though you what, even though you is. had the di diagnosis from a couple of different therapists, correct? From therapists that they had to they had to assign. So that <laughs> right. they can see. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Right. Even even with that stuff, even with that, they denied me. So wow. I know that I'm not the only one and I'm not going to be the last. That's my fight. So the award stuff, yeah, okay, that's nice, whatever. But what I'm doing it is bigger picture. It's big picture. Yeah. Wow. I that's See, that just fits in with what I was talking about before. That, And I don't think it's it's limited to Prince George's County. It's no. I, I hear it from a lot of officers and first responders from around the country. Like I say, you know, whenever I go out to Ohio and do a post-critical incident seminar, that is much of the time is spent, you know, just talking about the anger and how they were treated by their agencies. And I know when I was teaching down at the FBI National Academy, that's something I used to talk to the police executives about that, you know, you guys got to take better care of your people. I don't know what it, I don't know what happens at a certain point when you get to a certain level in management, whether it's the FBI or a police department and a fire department, there's just something like people forget what it's like to be doing the job and they preach all day long and are people first are people first but then you don't put your people first and no. you just make it so difficult but you know the thing about recovery is and because i think that there's a lot of similarities between recovery from um, mental health issues and uh, substance abuse issues and as you mentioned people are self-medicating so a lot of times what they go together um you know, I know in my my own personal recovery, the world goes on. the The world is a bad, evil place. You know, a lot of times that you know people are taught when they're young. You know, everybody's good. We're all good people. No, we're not. No, not everybody's a good person. There actually are evil people out there. There are people out there that intend you harm. That's just the way that it is. And we move forward. And I know that I couldn't get well, and it sounds like you couldn't get well until we could learn to move forward with all of this going on, all this chaos going on and injustice in her life. And it sounds like you've done it. So how, take us through, how did you do that? So you, you have this, the, the department's mistreating you, you're, you're going through your nightmares, you're having all these these issues, but yet we're sitting here today. So something has worked out well. Like how, so anybody listening to this podcast right now, and they may be in a situation similar to yours, how would you give them hope and direction on getting better? Oh man, that's such a, it's like such such an important question. Yeah. And it's it's literally why I do what I like to call now my life's work. And I will say, had I addressed county police department 
about this before, I would have been moving from a place of anger, which would have been moving from like a place of emotion. And I would not have been as successful in trying to get my word out. So I think you have to, one of the, one of the things I definitely want to tell folks, if you're angry, you're mad at your department, be in that anger, sit in your, sit in that before you move from an emotional place, because nobody's, nobody's going to hear that, right? It's like trying to um, talk to a significant other about something, but all you're doing is like yelling, 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 or getting mad or moving from a aggression. That person's not hearing you anymore. It's we a very good point. Of, yeah. Yeah. We want to use our wise mind. We want to kind of use both the logic and both the emotion and come bring that together. But the only way you're going to be able to do that is once you go through this journey of healing and recognizing that that's even a thing. And one of the ways, cause you know, you made the question is stepping aside and stepping away from your ego. And that's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> stepping away from your ego, recognizing you don't have all the answers and you do need help. And, and as police officers, as law enforcement officers, we're used to being the people that have the, the answers. Because yeah. let's face it, people come to us for help. We don't go to people. We don't go to others for help. They come to us for help. But in and this situation, it's different. Yeah. But that's the problem. Even, you know, I wish I would have known then what I know now. Even as a police officer for the 10 years, I should have been seeking. I should have been talking to a professional or a coach or a life coach or a guru, whatever, whatever your thing is. But I, I was pouring out of an empty cup. Literally, I was depleted and I wasn't addicted to a substance, but I was addicted to dying. I, wa- I was addicted to suicide. If I could make sense of it, I would come home. I would take off the uniform. I would look at my gun and I would say, I'm going to wrap my mouth around that gun today. I'm not going back tomorrow. I'm, fucking, I'm tired. I'm over it. And then I would say, no, you know what? You're going to do it wrong. You end up half alive, half dead. Now mom's going to have to feed you through a tube. Never mind. Let's hope I get T-boned at a priority call tomorrow. Let's, let's hope for that instead. That's where my mind was all the time. I would wake up and be like, why am I waking up for what? I don't want to be here. And it had to get to a point where you're going to make change either out of inspiration or desperation. And I was in a desperate space once I lost my identity, right? What I thought was my identity. When you're no longer a police officer and you have to switch over to civilian life, you feel like you've lost who you are without that gun and that badge. I was so one-dimensional. So another thing that we have to recognize, if you want to go on this journey of healing or if and when, my hope is when, when you go on this journey is that you have to recognize that you are three-dimensional. You are more than your profession. You are more than your addiction. You are more than that shameful, hurtful, traumatic event. You are more than that loss. You are more than that. You are a whole entire human. And we have to, we have to get in our mindset that we are three-dimensional. We have to move away from our ego and move without ego and not move with hate. And then I would also, one of the things that's very uncomfortable for us to do is vulnerability. Talking about your feelings. Nobody wants to do that. I don't want to sit in a room with not even, not one person or a group of people and talk about my emotions and my feelings and cry in front of you. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. So then do that. I always tell folks, what is the most uncomfortable thing to do? For somebody that's like anxious, always thinking about the future and tomorrow, what's what's uncomfortable? Probably sitting here in the here and now, do that. What about the person that's living in the past, right? Because living in the past is depression. Oh, but I messed up, Bev. I messed up big. Like I messed up so bad. Well, what's the uncomfortable thing to do? Live in the here and now. So then do that. I always tell people, do the uncomfortable thing because discomfort is change and change is growth. So those are like some of the few, just the quick and dirties that I could give you on kind of what helped me. And that's what I did. 
I started, I went through the Center for Mind Body Medicine to get certified as a group facilitator. And I'm sitting in this group of women and they're, you know, older, uh, you know, white women and I'm Hispanic. I'm, you know, in my early 30s. And I was just like, man, these women don't have nothing in common with me. I'm not talking to them. And I remember going around the group and when it got to me, I would always say pass pass and I would not <laughs> share. I was like, I was just an angry jerk because like, I knew it all and you don't know me. You're never going to understand my walk. You don't look like me. So you don't know my life or my walk. I'm not going to open up until eventually one day I was, my sister said to me, um, my sister's like, she's my hero. She said, I suggest you open up in those groups or, or you stop going because you are literally wasting time that someone else could be using by getting this help mm. and you're wasting their time. And I was just like, fine. So at that point, the next day, I was like, you know what? Fine, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do the thing. I'm gonna talk, and I talked, and Mike, I promise you, it was like this weight lifted, and I put. I was the first time talking about my shooting, and I talked about it to these women who weren't police officers, who weren't Hispanic, who weren't you know whatever, whatevers, and they each understood because we've all been through trauma and we've all been through grief. And no matter what you look like or what you've been through, we know the five stages of grief. We know depression. We know how it feels to be completely lost. And that made me realize at that moment that I am not police officer, Hispanic, Bev. Like I am human. I'm having a human experience. And in that moment, I was able to connect with all of these ladies who a few of them I still talk to. And then I built community and we want to be part of something. And that's but it was a journey. It was I had to step away from my ego. We did mindfulness. We did meditation. I remember saying, I'm not doing this hippie dippy shit. Pardon my <laughs> that's what I used to say. I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm like, no, absolutely. Not. I'm not going to sit here and think about my breath and breathe. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. And I did it. Literally, it has saved my life. Yeah. So doing the, the, the uncomfortable thing, doing the things that you don't want to do, do that. That's what I recommend. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I think we as police officers too, uh, there, there's this tendency of first responders to only associate with other first responders. You know, we, we talk about, you know, different groups, you know, white people hang out with white people, black people hang out with white, Hispanics hang out. Well, police officers do that. Police officers only hang out with police officers. And because we think that like these people over here, you know, whether no matter what group you're a part of LGBT, things like that, we think, well, no one else can understand what we're going through. And what you're seeing there is, well... Not so much. Our experiences may be different. The trauma that we have is different. The problems we have are different, but everybody has problems. And, you know, because I work with a lot of CEOs, I work with, you know, high powered people, I've worked with politicians, I've worked with um, clergy, you know, you, you mentioned, but everybody has their stressors that they go through. And they're not any worse or better they're just you know it's just what comes at you is different and what you know so it was interesting that you're in this group with these people that you thought couldn't relate to you in any way but really you could relate to them because they had they have their own issues they have their own right. issues they're just different issues and right. but the way that we can solve these issues is largely similar you know in how we we address those issues and i think it's good for us as law enforcement people to get out of our realm i actually think it's a very healthy thing for us to do to get out of our realm because you mentioned that we're three-dimensional people that we have uh we're not we are not our job this is a job at the end of the day law being a police officer is a job i know that we think of it as being more than a job 
and you know because it's what you are to what you identify as but that can be a problem particularly when in you um you know the 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 police job is great it's very supportive until it's not and if anybody's been on the receiving end of a law enforcement job that stopped being supportive of you it can be a pretty dark place it can be a very dark place and um you know the problem is is that we've invested our we put our entire identity in this thing and now now it looks like the job's turned on us or the department's turned on us and that's that's tough that's a tough thing to do and that's and that's a good and that's a good reality that i like to share with the first responders that i work with because i'm like you know when i lost my when i essentially got terminated from my valor you know when i lost the job i was like but I want to help people. Well, however, will I ever, ever help people ever again? I will never, ever be able to do that ever again. I've lost my purpose. That was my why. I'm done. I tapped out of life. I'm out of here. When fast forward to where I'm at now, helping people and saving lives every single day. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Without a gun and a badge. Mm-hmm. Like I'm still doing it because I am able to. And that was my calling. And that was my purpose. And this is what I'm meant to do. It's, it's unfortunate the circumstances that had to happen for me to get here, but those doors had to close for these doors to open and I had to walk through them. And it's like, you will see, you know, if you join the job because you want to help people, once you leave the job, if you leave the job and you're like, how will I ever help people again? Are you, however you want, everything is within the realm of possibility, but we have to get out of that singular mindset that, well, I'm only this, I am this, this is how I identify. You have to realize the big picture, you're more than your profession. Mm -hmm. And that's really important. I always try to emphasize that. And I always think, what brings you joy? What brings you joy? What do you like to do? What skill sets do you have? And I also want to make sure that, that folks know, despite the lack of support from my department, I cannot take away the good that came out of those 10 years. They built me into, I mean, it built me to be this woman. I mean, resilient leadership, command presence. I mean, you name it. And all the other skills, the trainings that I obtained. I mean, I took all kinds of training, whether it's identifying deceptive behaviors or whatever, all that stuff that you can never, you they cannot take my education away from me, what they gave me. All the trainings that I got, how to utilize different things and tourniquets and all those things, all that stuff, you can't take that away from me. Mm-hmm. And, and when you look at all that stuff and what you have, you have this skill set still, you know, okay, you no longer have the gun and the badge to say that you are a sworn police officer, but you still have all those skills, all that education. You still have that stuff. How can you utilize those and, and grow from those and use those towards whatever your next set, your next career is, you know, and that's kind of what I bring with my work. I started a nonprofit to work with first responders. And what I did is I took the test through Florida. I'm a certified peer through the state of Florida. And guess what I get to do? I get to do this type of work that I absolutely love. And I get to work with first responders and help them know that recovery is possible from mental health or from substance abuse while utilizing the skills that I learned from from being a police officer. I couldn't serve as a peer if I was never a police officer. How could I be a peer to a police officer if I never had the profession? But I'm able to say that I am because I was. So I, I'm grateful for the years that I that I had, despite of their lack of support. You know, I take away the good that I can take away. There was a reason why I, I was in that profession for a decade. There's yeah. a reason for it. You know, so I take that. I try to take the good away from it and utilize those skill sets. And once we start shifting our mindset like that, you'll realize like big picture, 
there is something for you to do. Um, but in this journey, like I was mentioning to you before, in the journey of healing, you're going to recognize that you need to step away from your ego, step outside of yourself and understand that there is a big, there is a purpose for you. If you're waking up every day, it's because there's something left for you to do. It may be within this profession. It may be a new profession. It may be something totally different. It may be something that you didn't, that you are passionate about doing. It's a hobby, but you, you're too scared to take that leap. It might be that. And unfortunately for a lot of folks, we don't get into our calling until something unfortunate happens, like a termination. And then you're left with no choice but to start a new career path. And I just always hope that, you know, when people hear this, it's like, just be proactive. Don't be reactive. If you're unhappy in your workplace, you don't have to be there. But we also want to be mindful that we don't just leave and leave all our responsibilities, but start maybe making your exit plan. What mm -hmm. do you find joy in? What skill sets do you have? What could you do? Who could you work for? What would you ideally be doing if you could do anything realistically? And then start creating a little plan. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. And, you know, that ties into what uh, I, I think part of getting well and part of recovery is tied back to something that you said earlier. And that is look, living in the present Living in, living in the present and then looking to the, the future. But oftentimes we spend a lot of times, particularly people suffering from trauma and addiction, we live in the past. You know, we're, we're just lamenting on the past and there's nothing that we can do about the past. The good, bad, ugly, we, nothing we can do. All we really can do is deal with what's in front of us right now. We can plan for the future. We can look to the future. And, and it's good to have those plans, like you said. But, you know, start making that exit plan if you don't like the job that you're in. Um, don't be irresponsible about it, but start the next planning stage. But looking forward, however, you don't want to project too hard or live in the future either because we don't really know what the future is going to hold. But, but deal with what is in front of us right now because if we're living in the future – um, and dwelling on the past, then we're not dealing with what's in front of us right now. And that can have a negative impact on the work that we do, the relationships that we have, and so on and so forth. Um, so I really like how you how you look at it yeah. there is, what am I going to do? I'm here. There's Okay, I'm right. here right now. However I got here, I'm here. The question is, where like, do I go from here? It's such an uh, uncomfortable process because we want to be in control. But... Mm -hmm even as you sit here and you fantasize about this false reality that is the future, you're still not in control of it. It's still going to be what it wants to be. Uh, frankly, you don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. I mean, none of us knows. An hour from now. Right. Don't I, know anything. None I of it. Well, know. and I always ask right? people that they give me this strange, like I said, hey, when are you going to die? And they look at that like, what the hell kind of a question is that? I go, no, I'm, I'm asking because you're, you're awfully worried about the future, right? You're awfully worried about what you're going to do 10 years from now. I mean, the fact is you don't know if you're going to be alive eight o'clock tomorrow night. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you don't know. You don't know. You really don't know what is going to happen from day to day. So... Uh, to a great, great extent, you can say is, why are you obsessing over something that you're not even sure if it's going to happen? Just, uh, But I can tell you this, while you're burning energy on that, you're not paying attention to what's going on right now. Right, right, right now in with front you. of you and the gratitude of what's in front of you. And I always tell people, man, be grateful for your struggles. Be mm -hmm. grateful for your struggles because there's always somebody. It's always, it could always be worse. Be grateful for your struggles. 
Yeah, I, I tell you, I see that when I go to twelve step meetings all the time. Whatever your what's whatever's going on in your life, trust me, you can go to a meeting and hear somebody that has had it mm-hmm. worse. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and and the fact is that they need you and help out. And that's the problem too with grief and tragedy and addiction is we become so obsessed with what's going on with us that we forget that really what we ought to be doing is is helping other people get through their grief. And the magic of that is oftentimes in helping other people get through their grief miraculously it helps us get through our own when we're yep. helping others yeah because i i actually i share my i share my shooting and i also have the dash cam of it so i share that as well and i have folks that are like how can you keep watching this like how are you able to watch this over and over again so it's like not so much what you see but you can hear you can hear me you can hear jakai you can hear the desperation and the hopelessness and the, you just hear it very rough um kind of to, to just listen to and they're like how do you do this i'm like the more i tell it the less power i give it mm-hmm. and my sister said that to me she's like you know Bev, the more you tell it the less power you give it and in telling it, it it's healing to me now when i watch the dash cam video it is something that i do because i know that this is this falls in line with my purpose and this is a part of the story and i feel like especially for first responders like for first responders or police officers to kind of really i guess buy in for lack of a better term all this stuff that i'm telling like tell people to live in the present and mindfulness and meditation it's like i have to rip the band-aid off kind of rough and that's the way to do it showing them like that's what happened and this is where i'm at now Mm -hmm. and people are like how did you get there though like what did you do well this is what i did and i tell them what i did the vulnerability stepping away from my ego literally everything that i did it cost nothing it's being vulnerable, talking about my feelings and my emotions, stepping away from my ego, recognizing that I'm not better or I don't know it all or all that stuff. Like, man, you, you're not going to understand. You were never a cop. Oh, you don't get it or you won't understand or, uh, you know, I don't need it. I'm fine. Or blaming others. Like, so it's vulnerability, stepping away from your ego. Right. And once you step away from your ego, you're also able to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Because we're the go-to, right? We're the go-to guy. So who does the go-to guy go to? Nobody. Right. So you're going to eventually explode. You could ask for help. Everybody, it takes a village because we want that sense of community. But in order to find your community, you're going to have to open up and be vulnerable. And I get it. Like at, at our ages, it's like, you know, some people are like, man, Bev, where am I going to? You know, for the folks that are in the rehab program, they're like, Bev, where am I going to meet sober friends? I'm like, dude, go to AA and you'll meet people there. Like, you know, you'll find your new tribe. I know it's weird making friends at this age and stage of your life. But do how bad do you want it? I always tell people you're in a fight for your life. How bad do you want it? So when people are like, how did you get there, Bev? What did you do? I did the work. I did the stuff that I didn't want to do. Vulnerability stepping away from my ego and the uncomfortable stuff. So as it pertains to those that are dealing with self-medication or maybe addiction to alcohol or whatever it is, if drinking is what makes you feel better when you're feeling sad or mad or whatever, do the opposite of drinking. What's that? Not drinking, going to getting a milkshake, do that. Do the opposite because we always talk about the definition of insanity. So if you really, if how bad do you want it? And if you really want change, you're going to have to do the uncomfortable thing. Vulnerability, stepping away from ego and realizing that the uncomfortable thing, that's growth. And, and you talked about building your new tribe and, and you mentioned something about, you know, the people that said, 
if if I don't drink now, where am I going to find my friends? Actually, all my friends are in recovery now. Uh, <laughs> all of them so are. Um, and I, I'll tell you this yep. too, that uh, my network of, of people, friends, and, and even professional contacts are almost exclusively people in recovery. Every job that I've gotten since I retired um, was a result of people that I knew in recovery, actually. It's it, it's amazing. So if you're struggling out there thinking, well, I can't change my, I'm not going to have any friends. I'm not going to have any f- uh, fun. That's absolutely not true at all. There's a lot of people, believe it or not, a lot of people in, in law enforcement that are in recovery and um, very, very uh, tight networks of people, you you can do that. Um, and when you were talking about the thing about living in, in negativity, you mentioned earlier, and we'll kind of circle back to this thing here before we wrap up. You mentioned that one of the things that you you are planning on doing at this retreat is Reiki. And um, Reiki is something that um, those that listen to this podcast go way, way back, a number of um episodes, I I interviewed uh, a guy named Art Nevis, who is a Reiki practitioner. He was an FBI agent that I knew down at the FBI Academy. And we talk about energy because uh, what happens is, um, and I'll I'll turn this over to you here in a second, Bev. Uh, Folks, being negative, being negative and living in that negative energy is very toxic to your body, mind, soul. And it really just just, uh, tears you apart. And when Art was talking about Reiki, he was talking about energy and how we project energy. And we we did something called the white rice experiments, or he knew he knew of this white rice experiment. And I talked about it in the podcast where I went home and I tried it because frankly, I didn't believe what Art was telling me. And he had me talking lovingly to a bowl of rice, white rice, two, two different bowls, one talking lovingly to it. And then the other one yelling at it and being hateful and angry. And after a week, the the bowl of rice that I was speaking lovingly to was still white. And then the other one had mold growing on it, the one where I was being negative to it. And I was shocked because I really didn't think this was going to happen. And what, what Art was explaining to me was that's what the negative energy does. It, it's very toxic. It, it's very destructive. And um, that, it was, you know, really what he was saying is that that energy that happens to ourselves, that we create health problems, we create all kinds of issues in our body, physical bodies is a result of this negative energy that keeps perpetuating itself. Um, would you agree with that? Because, I, I, again, I know you, you just quickly mentioned Reiki in the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, oh, my gosh, Mike, I am so intrigued. I'm over here thinking about going to get a bag of rice so I can try this. Yeah. I love that. Wow. How long after did you notice the changes in the rice? Uh, I think it started happening about two or three days into it, and I did it for a week. And there is, I believe there's a YouTube um, video that you can watch called The White Rice Experiment. And if if any of you listening or Bev, you know, go back. Art Nevis was the guy that I interviewed uh, sometime back, and he he talked specifically about Reiki. Because when he first told me about Reiki, I was like, hmm, what? <laughs> but he made a believer. He actually made a believer out of me. But at first I was like, mm, that sounds like some voodoo stuff to me. But no, there's something to it. And and now there's a lot of there's a lot of metadata out there talking about um, yeah. being positive, you know, being positive yeah. in hospitals now. You know, that's you know, that's why in hospitals, you know, people that are in recovery from operations or trauma, things like that. Um, that's one of the reasons why they found that people that have a strong spiritual base tend to heal quicker than people that do not. And it's because of the positive outlook um, and that positivity has uh, an impact on your 
uh, physical well-being. And I notice that the times where I'm going mm-hmm. through stress and I'm negative, I, end, I, I become sick, whether it's a cold, the flu, being run down. Um, I've, I'm at my worst when I'm in a negative place as opposed to being yep. very, very positive. Um, so I, I just I just wanted to touch on that because you mentioned it no. earlier. Yes, and as uh, Reiki, also breath work is something that I want to mm-hmm. include. Um, all those things. I honestly, I truly believe in all those things that are the whole holistic practices because much like um, Art, your friend Art said, we are made up of energies. I mean, this is a vessel, right? The outside of it, it's a vessel. We have to take care of our vessel. That's important. But we are made up of energies. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't matter if Beth thinks, oh, once I lose weight, I'll be happier. And then I lose the weight and I'm still miserable. Mm-hmm. It's because it's it's the it's the energy. It's what you're giving. It's so what I tell people when you, you start on this journey, and but I think that this is a great exercise for people to see, all right, is this stuff like hocus pocus or what is this? I think that's a good exercise. But I would also recommend for folks to start doing kind of like the positive affirmations, right? Telling yourself a positive phrase every morning rather than the, oh, God, another day, about to sit in traffic, this sucks. Instead of starting with that, starting with a positive affirmation or mm-hmm. gratitude, because much like he said, we are made up of energies what you put out is what you're going to get back if i'm waking up and i'm already like negative thinking about traffic or negative thinking about an email or a coworker, that's the energy that i'm literally putting out that's the force that's guiding my day that's how i'm guiding my day and that's what i'm going to attract i'm attracting traffic i'm attracting negative uh you know interactions with coworkers. but if i wake up and i have that shift of mindset, which is hard. If we've been wired to be a certain way and not bad, bad stuff happens. I don't trust people. Humans suck this and that. I get it. Cause we get called out to the worst days. We don't get called out on good days. We get called out on the worst days. But if we shift our mindset to think, yeah, but I'm going to be that light for that person's worst day. Now you've shifted your mindset. You're the light that's going to go into that person's darkest day. It's giving you a different look when you respond to those calls. So we have to shift our mindset. Once you shift your mindset and you start walking in gratitude, walking and moving with love, it's so easy to recruit people to hate on something or hate a, you know, a a thing or a person or a job. We're pretty good at that. (laughs) Really good at that. So the, so, so the uncomfortable thing would be to move with love and to move with grace and to step away from your ego. When you do that, once you start moving like that, much like how you attracted your tribe that you're saying, man, even my colleagues in a professional capacity, they're all like in recovery. Your tribe will come. You will attract certain folks and certain things into your life. As you mentioned before, life is going to be hard regardless. Trauma and grief are things that we're all going to go through and we're going to continue to go through maybe. It's just not something that is it's in our control. Life is going to be difficult, but how you respond to these everyday things that are not in your control that's what truly matters. And once you shift your mindset, you are shielded by that mindset that not, you're unbreakable. You can bounce back from stuff because you have shielded yourself with this mindset of of love and gratitude and vulnerability and seeking and knowing that there is help and you don't have to life alone. You don't have to. Yeah. You'll find your tribe. But it's that it's really the hardest part is the mind sh- mindset shift. And absolutely, we are made up of energies, absolutely Reiki, absolutely breath work, meditation. You know, the way that I got into meditation is when they told me, the way they said it to me, they said, mindset, um, mind, not, meditation is like a bicep curl for your brain. <laughs> I like that. 
<laughs> I love that because I yeah. work out. So I'm like, well, I can't just hit buys one day a month and think I got biceps. Like if I want to get biceps, I'm going to hit it like twice a week or once a week, every week for like two, three months. Like, so I could see the actual results. That's what meditation is. It's like a bicep curl for your brain. So my advice would be to do a guided meditation, a short one, whether it's five minutes, three minute guided meditation, not maybe every day, once a week. The next week you up it, do it twice a week. Mm -hmm. The next week you do it three times a week and you up it to 10 minutes. You know what I mean? And you just start working on it gradually, gradually, gradually. But absolutely, the Reiki stuff, all the all the holistic practices, for me, those are the things that saved my life. And then what I did is I added something that I that I love, love, which is the water. So I surf, I swim, and I include mindfulness, whether I'm doing a beach meditation, and then I go in and I paddle out, whatever it is. So, yes. To include drinking a lot of water and cleaning your system out. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Water you know, uh, because it's, yep. and I'll, I'll point out that if, if anybody thinks that this kind of stuff is hocus pocus, the fact is that most professional athletes, uh, elite athletes, spend a lot of time in meditation, in visualization, you know, a yoga. Yoga is actually very, very big with professional athletes. And yep. the things that a lot of cops uh, in particular are like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Well, I, I don't know. Olympic athletes do it. But, you know, NFL football mm -hmm. players, basketball players. Um, I was listening to a podcast with um, a professional uh, NBA player, and he talked about how uh, important uh, meditation and yoga was in his life and how it, yep. in, it helped him become a better basketball professional basketball player. So, you know, people who's living, you know, they make their living with their bodies and and being able to perform at a high level do something, maybe we should do that because, you know, um you don't have to treat your, you know, I think uh, our bodies and our brains, I think for some reason we think, well, I'm not a professional athlete, so I don't know, I don't need to do that. No, but if we adopted a lot of the practices of professional athletes, we would probably be better off. Um, you know, and, and if you are a police officer, actually, your body's pretty important um, in the job that you're doing. So you want to take care of it. And if you wanted to, and I can tell you as somebody who retired from the law enforcement profession, uh, my advice to young people, and I do this all the time when, I'm, when I am talking to young people is, if you want to do this for 20 or 30 years, you better damn well take care of yourself. Because mm -hmm. this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. Right. And one of the things, I like how you said that, because one of the things is like, you're not looking at what this athlete is doing so that you can have like this athletic build and stamina. No, no, no. The big picture here is if you don't like where your life is right now, those routine things you do, you're going to have to change them. Mm -hmm. you're That's true. You're going to have to change them. We're not saying I'm trying to be like, you know, like Michael Jordan. No, but how did Michael Jordan become Michael Jordan? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily want that fame or be a ball player, all this stuff, but how did he, this is human. He's a human, right? Mm -hmm. What superhuman powers does he have that I don't? Well, then you start, I always tell people to do that. Think about somebody you admire. Think about somebody you look up to. Learn their story, where they came from. Learn the traits that they acquire. Tell yourself you want those traits and then learn what they did to get there. Yeah. A lot of times what they did to get there is eat a lot of humble pie, step away from their egos and do weird stuff that they never thought they were ever going to do, like meditation, like mindfulness, like Reiki, like yoga, like all that stuff. Because they all do it. <laughs> they, they, they all do. Yeah. And, yeah, and I, I can tell you something, if you're a multi-million dollar professional athlete, um, they are not wasting their time on things that don't work. 
And, and again, no. I think I, you raise a good point. Look at somebody. Look at somebody's life. You go. You know. See that person over there. I, there's something about them, their story, whatever it is that they do that I like. And study them. And what is it that they do? And what you're going to find, oftentimes, things that we police officers find as being silly. Like I will never. I will never be caught dead in a. Because I hear that from police officers. I'm not going to a yoga class. Are you kidding me? Right. I don't know. Uh, well, uh, Michael Jordan did. Um, right. Or, or like, or they'll say things like, well, Bev, I'm not flexible. How do you think you're going to get flexible if you never try flex being flexible? Yeah. It's like when you try to go get a job and they're like, oh, you have no experience. Well, can I get some experience so I can have experience? <laughs> like, how do I get the experience then? Right. It's like, I'm not flexible. Okay. Well, how do you become flexible? By slowly, but surely yeah. stretching out those muscles and those body parts until, I don't know, uh, uh, three months from now, you're doing a full blown split, but you had to start somewhere. How do I get better at running? By running. Uh, yeah, by, <laughs> by baby, let's crawl. Then we walk. Now we're running. You know what I mean? But it's like, yeah. the thing about it is too, you have to keep an open mind and a curious mind. The curious mind, the one that's always yearning for education and learning and realizes I don't have all the answers. Again, we talk about that ego, that curious mind, that's the one that you're going to excel with. Yeah. Always be open to it. Always be open to something that's going to benefit you. Do your research. Don't get me wrong. But if we do do our research on meditation and mindfulness, that stuff's been existing since whew, way before it became like a fad. You know, it's meditation. Well, all of the whatever your if if you have a religious yeah. tradition, you know, those of us that have a a faith tradition, a face, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a faith. Uh, of a particular religion, and by the way, it could be any of them. Um, you will find that the the great pillars, the great uh, people in whatever religious tradition you're in, what did they do? A lot of meditation, a lot yep. of praying, a lot of of you know mindful. The, what we would call mindfulness today, they they were doing that back in the the beginning of time. Oh, of and, course. You know, this is this is nothing that that has just been invented or is just coming to the forefront. It's something that's always been there. However, because of different cultures or whatever, we just didn't adopt those. You know, I didn't grow up meditating, mm-hmm. you know, but if I would have been born in, I don't know, India with yogis or wherever, that would have been a part of my lifestyle and I would have had that. What I grew up with was, you know, the the go, 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 the we, you know, the this and that and the, you know, all that mindset, like the all the rushing and all the stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now it's as I got to this point, like I said, you're going to start shifting your life, whether through inspiration, which is my hope, or desperation, which was mine. Oh, I, love I that. was in a desperate place. And through that desperation, I was like, how do I get there? I just want to get to the good part already. I don't want to feel like this anymore. I don't want to feel like this anymore. What is my purpose? What is my why? That's when I was like, well, Dad, what are you going to do about it? And I had to do the hippie hippie stuff. That's what I used to call I it. Like, and it saved me, you know, but I had to be open. I had to be curious and I had to want it. How bad do you want it? Because that's another thing that I tell folks. I can't want it more than you. I can't. I'm sorry. I wish everybody could be where I'm at and leading your purpose and walking in this walk, but I can't want it more than you. And if you are still blaming others or you still have displaced anger, or you're still walking around with negativity and negative energy, you're not ready. You're not ready. Yeah. I, you know, and I hate to do that when I have people that I'm working with, um, you know, my field's addiction. Um, when I generally start, make the decision to stop working with someone, it's usually because I, well, I tell them it's because 
you know, when I when I get to the point to where I feel like I'm I am working on your sobriety harder than you are working on your sobriety, yeah. then that's no. a problem. And yep. and I love that. It's it's inspiration or desperation, one of the two. And yep. you've got to want it. You know, there's a lot of things that we can do to help people um, if they want to get well. A lot. If if you want to get well, there's you reach out to any of it, you reach out to me, Bev, and and any of the other people yes. who've been on this podcast. You know, every single person that I have interviewed on this podcast would go to the end of the earth to help you. But not yep. one of them, not one of them to include Bev and I can help you if you don't want to get well. Not one of, there's nothing I can do for you. And and I love that. You you say it's, you know, uh, how bad do I want it? You know, how bad? And, and the question is, if you're listening to this podcast right now, how bad do you want it? Do you want to get well? You can get well. I'm proof of it. Bev is, Bev is proof of it. But the difference is I, I got to the point in my story where I, I wanted to get well much more than I wanted to continue living the way that I was living. And that's the that's what we do. And that's yeah. just it. And, and I just want to say one last thing. Sure. I know that we uh, we say this often, too, just as a former police officer. You know, I was placing a lot of blame on my department for not helping me. Mm-hmm. However, at the end of the day, closed mouths don't get fed. You know, you have, if you want to get help, you don't have to wait on the department to change its entire structure and help you. Because the one thing, the world is not going to change for you. The world is not going to move for Bev. Everything isn't going to stop and be like, oh, let's get Bev help. Nope. I had to figure it out. I had to work. I had to go find the help. So if you're working for a department and you're dealing with a mental health or a substance abuse and you know if you go tell somebody you'll lose your job or you'll take away your gun or badge or they'll give you a 1-800 number to contact your EAP and you're like, ah, they're not going to help me anyways. I would not be so discouraged to stop there. I would continue to seek help. How bad do you want sobriety? Mm -hmm. How bad do you want recovery? Why are you only going to your department and expecting them to do something for you. They owe you nothing, unfortunately. That's just that's just what it is. But you owe it to yourself to keep fighting this fight and seeking help and doing your research and finding out what works and going to the AA meetings. There's a meeting all the time, everywhere, always. Mm-hmm. So how bad do you want it? Don't wait on these departments. Uh, but if we don't have a peer support, then, then create one become one. Mm-hmm. We don't have to wait on any departments or agencies to give us the help that we know we need. Just don't be discouraged if your department is not there yet to offer that help because I exist, Mike exists, and a host of other resources exist where you do not have to feel like, well, if my department doesn't help me, just never mind then. There's no help out there. Yes, it is. How bad do you want it though? Yeah, you lead from where you stand, and I, and I like that. And actually, I started a couple of meetings. Um, I started the first two AA meetings in, in the FBI. They did not exist, and it goes to what you are just saying. I thought, well, okay, they don't exist, so I'll start at one. <laughs> that's what you that's do. It. Yeah, that's but what you do. How bad do you want it? How bad do you want it? But absolutely, recovery is absolutely possible. Wow. Here we I, sit. I love it. You, I, I wrote Thank down, you. you You can't see it, but I have a, I have a board next to uh, the table I'm sitting at right now, and I wrote down – Oh my gosh, probably about eight different quotes from you because nice. there are so many different quotes that I thought were phenomenal. <laughs> oh, hey, uh, but so before we go, uh, one last, um, let our listeners know how, if they want to get hold of you, how can they get hold of you and the resources that you have? Because I know you have a website. If we could yes. share that. Yes, the website is www.shieldus.app. And you can follow us on Instagram at shieldus.app also you can follow me at underscore bevy bev on instagram 
the, the website. You can go on there and there's a contact information. Follow me on, follow us on social media as well. And I am not a difficult person to get in contact with. And I respond back to every message and every direct message as well. So wow, thank fantastic. you again, Mike. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Oh, thank you. And folks, if, if this applies to you, Check it out. Um, check out the, the, she has a really good website. I checked it out earlier. There's a lot of good information on there. And Bev, we definitely support you and in, in your future endeavors. And and I just wish you the best luck of getting this thing going and, and helping as many people as you can. Uh, it's fantastic. And oh, by the way, Bev, for you and for the listeners, uh, that podcast where I was interviewing Art Nevis on Reiki, uh, it is episode 80. So check that out. Episode 80 nice. talking about, and the, the the title of the episode is, What is Reiki? So if you don't know what Reiki is, listen to that, check it out. I didn't believe nice. it, but I'm a believer now. And <laughs> nice. I've got some, you know, like really freaky stories from <laughs> mm-hmm. from, uh, from mm-hmm. some of the stuff that he did. But I'm a, I'm a believer in a lot of stuff that I used to not be a believer in. But check yep. that out, episode 80. And so with that, guys, you know, once again, this episode has been sponsored by FHE Health. And according to SAMHSA, first responders, are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. And we just spent a lot of time talking about that. And it's absolutely true. And FHE Health uh, specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. So check out more from them at FHEHealth.com. That's FHEHealth.com. And, uh, you know, folks, as I always like to say, I don't represent any group out there. I, I do talk about different groups, but I don't represent them. Um, these are just resources that we put out there, the things that have worked for me and maybe they'll work for you. And if I've said anything or if Bev has said anything that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with, then just discard it. Folks, you don't throw it all out. You take any information that you can use for yourself and try to use that to help others as well because that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way and we try to help impart the knowledge that we've gained in that process to you as well and so with that please visit our facebook page which is recovery is possible and our website which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com let me know how i'm doing and let me know if there's a topic that you want to hear about because we're always trying to give you content that will make your life better as well as the lives of the people around you this is mike van meter recovery is possible you take care of yourselves talk with you soon